song you just heard is Dog of War by the Hell Yeah Babies, which means I'm Nick Bond. I'm David Gibb. And this is how wrestling explains the world. Exciting episode today, Dave. Oh, of course. You know, anytime we're getting uh, literature that gets my uh, gets my hockles up. That's a that's a lovely bit of hockles. Uh, <laughs> Actually, I think it's hackles. I think it's hackles with an A sound. It's the it's the hair on the back of the dog's neck that goes up when it gets agitated. <laughs> so I think I think in making my reference, I fucked it up though. So I undermined my own authority as a as a linguistic expert from the outset. So so we're off to a hot start. And we actually, you, uh, I was excited to pick this one. We wanted to do a topic after the Four Horsewomen that was both a discussion, as we often do or a continuation of the discussion we were having in the previous episode without uh, basically making it about girl power. So we decided on uh, what I think is one of the most stark examples of what happens when uh, women become involved in a new field or when they achieve something that other that had previously been seen as not achievable by women because of whatever sexist, anti-feminist, misogynist reasons you might have. And I don't think a lot of people associate that with the story of Frankenstein, but it's one of the most important things to know about the story, the story of the story of Frankenstein. And uh, you actually have, uh, I believe, taught classes in this, and, and you know a little bit about the authorship issues of Mary Shelley and Frankenstein involving her husband? Yeah, certainly. So her, her husband was the super famous uh, English poet Percy Shelley, uh, you know, like Ozymandias, right, which was a big motif in the last season of uh, Breaking Bad and stuff. That's a poem by Percy Shelley. Um, but, but she was his wife. And the kind of legendary story behind the origin of Frankenstein is that they and a bunch of other kind of literati celebrity types uh, were at a, a party one night, a late night party, and they began to have a uh, ghost storytelling contest. And supposedly the, the roots of the Frankenstein novel were in that ghost storytelling contest at that party that, that the Shelleys were at together. Um, but, but yeah, the, the, the novel is attributed to Mary Shelley. And if that attribution is correct, which I, I tend to support it just because why not? Uh, but I tend to support the attribution because if somebody else's, you, you know, it, it, the burden of proof is to prove otherwise. Sorry, wait, I'm going to say that again. The burden is to prove otherwise once that name is on the front of it. But I mean, that makes her really, you know, the, the mother of science fiction in a lot of ways. So the attribution to, to her is, is important in that, yeah, like I said, it really makes her the mother of science fiction and it makes her uh, one of the most like recognizable and remembered English novelists of the 19th century. But right away, like as soon as the book was published, other people from the literary community immediately called foul and said like they started pointing to individual phrases and words and certain aspects of the book and saying, this is language that Shelley was used. I think um, the famous one was Walter Scott, Sir Walter Scott, who wrote Ivanhoe, his most famous work. But Sir Walter Scott, who was like one of the biggest people in the British poetic community of the time, like was very outspoken. He like wrote articles in newspapers and stuff, trying to like debunk the book and saying that it was, that it had been written by Percy Shelley. So from the very outset, there was this concerted effort to, to take the accomplishment away from her in a really counter-feminist move that unfortunately like for really is kind of the default in terms of the, um, the, the custodianship of the canon, as we've kind of touched on in some previous episodes. And it's something that you see in wrestling. And the most stark example that I can think of is the, it was the Raw after WrestleMania. I want to say in the year 2011, it was WrestleMania 29. It was the New Jersey one, right? It was the one. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah it was in, the crowd, who's notoriously out of control, spent the entire match, women's tag team match, chanting the names of the boyfriends of the performers. And, like, that was until the Four Horsewomen came out, and there's still stuff attached to them. The way in which we interacted with women's wrestling, it was who's dating who backstage, and that's why they're getting a push. Or they're only they don't have actual accomplishments themselves. There's a reason, a machination behind the scenes that is the one that causes them to achieve things, quite frankly. Or, in the, and this is a, a weird reverse case, you have Stephanie McMahon being married 
to Triple H, who I think we both agree is one of the greatest wrestlers of all time. And I don't think it's entirely untrue that he was given perhaps more than he would have otherwise if he was not married to Stephanie McMahon. But I think that is of the same idea of the kind of nepotism that you saw in world-class championship wrestling and whether or not that's good is a different story than whether or not Stephanie McMahon is to blame for that. And I think that was something you saw basically. It was a way to blame Stephanie McMahon for Triple H being on her television. Oh yeah, definitely. The example that came to, to my mind right away is Larry Zbysko. Like in the dying days of the AWA, Larry Zbysko was the AWA champion because he was married to one of Vern's daughters. So Vern could like trust him not to go to New York in the middle of the night kind of thing. So, but, but, so, so it, it's understandable that when, uh, when you've got to batten down the hatches and when you've got to, you know, really kind of put your eggs in one basket and, and, and pick a direction, it makes sense to pick the direction that, you know, where, where their investment is bigger than everybody else's because they've got more of a stake in the success. Like it is, it's nepotism, but it's also natural to some degree. You know what I mean? And, and it's, and whether or not it's, it's not the wife of the performer's fault this is happening either. And I think that's what you saw, is it very much became, especially with Triple H, like, it's Stephanie's fault. If he wasn't married to Stephanie, we wouldn't have to watch Triple H. But because he's the the son-in-law of Vince McMahon, we're forced to watch Triple H. And it's like, no, Triple H was over. And although you didn't like him, a lot of people did. And on top of that, he was also going to be one of the people who was going to be most loyal to the company and had the most to invest, uh, most reason to invest in the future success of the company. Like there are so many other things that make it that even if it was Stephanie's doing, it's not a, a bad thing and would never be her fault because the man in the situation has agency that exists outside of his wife. <laughs> and it works both ways on that. Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. Well, I guess that's part of the big problem and part of why I think she has has been so villainized or part of the germ of her becoming villainized even before she was playing a heel on TV was this like, quote unquote, like homewrecker narrative. You know what I mean? That was that was maybe uh, in that kind of early era of like shoot tapes cut up on YouTube. There were a lot of disgruntled uh, employees who would talk about that. Or I think there was a time in her life when like China would say that to anybody who would put a microphone in front of her face. You know what I mean? There was a concerted effort to construct a narrative which totally stripped both of them of, of agency and legitimacy uh, outside of maybe the idea that they were sneaky enough to have pulled it off. You know what I mean? There definitely was between like 2004, 2005 and like 2008, 2009, there was this like very concerted campaign and it, it, kind of part of it was about making, you know, like him just like a jerk who was super self-centered and making her someone who who was like aggressively ambitious in a way that's inherently gendered, you know what I mean? And I I, th I think that I think that we're still starting to pull that apart and it's tough because I think that as they are people who are in positions of power and people who who get to choose how they present themselves on TV, which not everybody really does. Um, they, they certainly deserve some scorn, but at the same time, I think we have to be careful of, of the way we've allowed old narratives or I'll say angles that people were working on their own when they were outside of the company. We've kind of let the, we got to start sorting that stuff back out. I think everybody deserves it. <laughs> when you hear criticism of women in the modern world, or even in the the when Mary Shelley was coming out, though I think that was a little bit more overt. Like women aren't smart enough, kind of. She couldn't have she couldn't have possibly written this book. It was obviously done by her husband because everybody knows that he's a famous poet, and she's just a famous poet's wife who goes to parties with. Him. Exactly, and I think that has to be separated. For instance, when when people criticize Stephanie McMahon, there are real criticisms to be had in the way that maybe Mary Shelley being treated as the greatest writer of all time is that any saying she's not doesn't necessarily mean that you're anti-woman. It means something, it could just mean you don't like her as much as other writers. But it is important to parse that because I think we miss the ways in which men, white men in particular, interact with women that enter their 
their sphere more their safe space and i know that's a, another thing that white guys don't really like talking about safe we need safe spaces and we for a really long time every space was a safe space for us and now it's not and i think that's a large part of why you see these reactions it is an unwillingness for men to identify their own vulnerabilities and their own needs and own wants and then using that anger about that inability to do that to attack people who are different from them and and women in particular because of that there's a power dynamic that exists that makes women that is there to make women uncomfortable and once you can break that down it scares men and they react in a way that is often pretty egregiously misogynistic yeah i think you're right and like i i i agree a hundred percent that there like i said before that there are legitimate complaints to be to be made about stephanie mcmahon like i think that she's kind of a good avatar for this but but at the same time i think that there's a lot of voices out there that are too quick that are too confident that are too anxious to point out those faults because as you say for underlying misogynistic reasons like men because the imbalance has persisted so long or white men i guess i should say because the the imbalance has persisted for so long there's like an overconfidence, like a willingness to call other people. And I think part of that, like I said, is an overconfidence that's, that's born out of just the imbalance lasting so long. But I think for, for dudes right now who are between the age of like, I don't know, like 20 and 50, there might be this kind of like, oh, we got to get our licks in while we can kind of thing going on to some degree, which is like really, really ugly. And I don't want, I would hate I, I, I hate for legitimate criticism to get tied up in all that, but like it's the Twitter age, so it's impossible for it not to, to some degree, but it's really ugly. Yeah. And I think Stephanie's interesting in particular because of the ways in which she weaponizes the woman's revolution. For lack of a better term, she really goes out of her way to frame it as though she is like Amelia Earhart or Lewis and Clark. Like, oh, definitely. I mean, the the subtitle of Frankenstein, the subtitle of the novel is uh, "Or the Modern Prometheus." And Stephanie McMahon definitely portrays herself at times like she thinks of herself as a modern Prometheus. Like she really thinks that she is passing down something that people should be expressing gratitude for. That like. She, as the as the self-appointed leader of the women's revolution or evolution, uh, you know, is 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 demanding of your praise, and like that's part of the folly of Frankenstein. Like that's Doctor Frankenstein's main flaw is like he thinks that he can play God and he thinks that he can create this thing, and everybody's going to be really impressed by it, and everybody's going to you know recognize him as much smarter than the conventional doctors and stuff, but. But like it blows up in his face and like the, the thing that he's created winds up hating him because of it. And I think part of what's problematic with Stephanie right now is she seems tone deaf. Like it's like she's never read Frankenstein. <laughs> you know what I mean? No, totally. There seems to be an, uh, a lack of awareness that and we talked about this during one of our videos during the uh, Boogie Nights video. Actually, the segment that they announce the evolution pay-per-view I think it's 62% of the the six-minute segment is the McMahons. It is not about the women's revolution. It is about marketing the re women's revolution and doing so with the McMahons standing in front of it by nature of standing behind it. Like, it is not about the women performers. It is about the WWE Staining to give an opportunity to women. And it reads especially weird when you think about the ways in which Stephanie, by all accounts, is an incredibly dedicated person to her job, to the company, to the world of wrestling. This isn't to say that she doesn't do like doesn't care and she's just there because it's a family business. She really cares, but there needs to be an understanding that. Stephanie would have likely, and this is an analogy we used beforehand, Stephanie would have likely hit a couple of triples in her lifetime. She's a very, very, very smart person. You see her talk. I've seen her interview. I was personally, when, when I was at the Evolution pay-per-view, she came and she smoked. She's so... I get it. You spend two seconds with her and you totally get why she's such a successful person. But 
she was born on third. <laughs> like, yes, she could hit some triples, but I think there's this, she believes that she is Gloria Steinem and she's not. There's also, it, it's also kind of creepy to me. Like there's just a self-congratulatoriness to it that's not good. And it takes me back to uh, a story that Wade Keller of the Pro Wrestling Torch used to tell a lot. This is like five plus years ago now. But at one point, Stephanie had gone to some sort of like big leadership conference and she retweeted this tweet that one of the people who spoke at the conference had, uh, you know, had, had put out there or whatever. But their big tagline was, in the 21st century, uh, charity work will be the new marketing or will be the new PR or whatever. And like right after that, WWE launched into like doing all the Komen stuff, doing the Connors Cure stuff, like, and, and just doing the thing where they just like baby face the crap out of the company for all the charity work. But it's like a, the thing that like, that, that Wade Keller would always point out was like, why did you retweet that? Even if you thought it was a good idea, don't you see how disingenuous it seemed to retweet that? And then within the next months, like launch a million different charities. Like it's great that you do charity work and it's such a better use of your money than not doing charity work. You know what I mean? But like at the same time, Jesus Christ, like how can you expect people to, to root for you if, if if you're if you're just so easy to see through in that way yeah or don't understand that even if you sincerely and the WWE is among the most charitable organizations in entertainment and sports for a really long time what they would do is at the end of a magazine they would do a two-page spread about the charity work they were doing they would not start an initiative after going to a leadership conference and tweeting about it. And I think what she doesn't understand is that Stephanie McMahon is Stephanie McMahon. It is not Terry Bollea and Hulk Hogan. It is not Steve Williams come Steve Austin and Stone Cold. She is who she is on television. No matter, She can't separate those two things in the way that she wants to be able to. She wants to be an executive at, at her dad's company, uh, not in that sense, but like she wants to be an executive at a, at a successful entertainment company. And she doesn't understand that she's a character in that, that company packages as entertainment. And that that is literally supposed to be the same person as her. It's, it's almost this weird, like Stephen Colbert, Stephen Colbert thing, but she isn't aware that it's two separate characters that people see as the same thing. Yeah, I think that there isn't there that whole phrase about like working yourself into a shoot <laughs> kind of thing. You know? Yeah, no, exactly. She she does not seem to under or she does not seem to fully uh, grasp or appreciate or publicly make it clear that she understands that she is Stephanie McMahon all the time. And I, I think that's something that she doesn't want to accept. So she does stuff like tweets that charity is the new PR. And it's like, that's kind of true. Stop saying the quiet part loud. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You just said that you're saying the quiet part loud and the loud part quiet. Exactly. <laughs> and it's, and again, they do amazing charity work. Like WWE was one of the few companies that just should have kept their mouth shut about it. <laughs> Yeah, because it was something they'd always done too. Like, I yeah. remember, like go going to see kids at the hospital and stuff has been like a wrestling photo op thing since like the fucking fifties. You know what I mean? Yeah, and they've been particularly like John Cena is the the biggest Make a Wish. They're really part of the reason a lot of people get into the enjoy working for the WWE is because they get to do stuff like this. They get to go to hospitals. They get to go to. Uh, soldiers in the front lines and stuff like that. Like a lot of the people that work for the company love doing this stuff because it's a pure fan experience without all the other bullshit on top of being able to feel like you're helping and accomplishing something like they're doing good work, but framing it that way, is just like, you can't, you don't get to, I'm sorry, Stephanie, you don't get to be Stephanie Levesque on tele, uh, like in real life, you don't. Well, and I, 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 I think that's part of the problem is that he's at least Triple H. Like, you know what yeah. I mean? But as you say, oh, that's like, what I'm saying. Yeah. Stephanie McMahon. Yeah, sorry. Just... Yeah, no, no, that, yeah, that's a much better. Yeah, exactly. Like, and I, I feel as though that is separate from the idea that she is seen and identified through her husband, which is what you had for a very long time in wrestling is every person. Luna Vachon was Bam Bam Bigelow's main squeeze. Like, you could never exist outside of the husband and 
or the boyfriend or the significant other that was a man. And I think you obviously see that with the fact that Percy Shelley was this great poet and Mary Shelley was some poet's wife. Like, and the idea that she could never do this is, is where you see this. All of these things manifest themselves in these ways. Uh, and it just, it kind of sucks. There's only so much you can do about it other than point it out while also making room for actual legitimate criticism. Yeah, or like, so, so like, to 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 temper what I said earlier, you know what I mean? Like, did if, if her husband was a super accomplished like writer who had been published many many times, like, would it make a ton of sense for he to be the primary consultant with whom she was working as she was writing this story? Is it probably likely that he edited multiple drafts? Are there words that he added and subtracted? Are there like maybe whole passages that were hers like his idea? Yes. But that doesn't mean she didn't write the book. I think there's kind of like a similarity between the two, you know, the two conversations that we're having right here. Oh, totally. I think that we accept men working collaboratively in a way that we do not accept women working collaboratively with men and being able to still accept credit because we presuppose that there's no way in which their contribution to any kind of professional or non-professional relationship could be equal or exceed that of the man. And I think that's where a lot of this comes from. Yeah, I think that there's this really ancient belief, like, in the arts. Like, I mean, I, I, I like, uh, like, Milton specifically, like, used this metaphor a lot. And it's, like, in Greek and Roman texts, too, that it's, I, like, this is horrible, but it's, it's like, a, a thought that was out there in the ethos that it's, like, uh, like, women create life and men create art. And like that, the idea that writing in particular, like I said, like uh, like Milton just uh, compared the, the the urge to write like male pregnancy, and that like that that poetry was like the 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 male equivalent of giving birth and stuff. And I think there there to this day, like I mean, like God, look at like the culture of Hollywood and stuff, right? There is this like strong misogynist impulse in the kind of art and storytelling community i guess generally that like that that, that that there's still there's still people there's still dudes like trying to plant a flag on writing as like a man thing i think and i think that i think that what consciously or not i think that that once again it's like do i think that all the people who who say certain things are necessarily as bad as those things sound you know what i mean but at the same time i think that it's like it, like I said before, because there's been a certain dynamic for so long, it's like so easy for white dudes who are in creative to get there. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I what's been incredible, and I think we can transition out of this very nice talk about modern feminism, is that the women, the four horsewomen we talked about have largely, even Charlotte, have largely, largely transcended that because... They, I don't want to say they waited for the right time, but they did not attempt to construct something for which there was not interest and act as though there was, which I think is something that the WWE usually in particular is pretty bad with, but they waited until, and I think this is partially Stephanie McMahon's doing, they waited until a case could be made for this change to happen before they made the change. And I don't think, I think it should have happened earlier. I think unequivocally, personally, I feel that way, but whether or not the audience was quote unquote ready is I think something that you could legitimately be an asshole and argue about until give divas a chance. And then it was just like, no, we're tired of seeing this either. Don't put women on the show or make it so that they're actually part of the show and not a sideshow. There was an, an annoyance on both sides. They just wanted to see a productive group of people on television you know what i'm saying like people who actually had agency and interesting characters and development they were tired of seeing bad television more so than they were uh, it was necessarily about feminism and they kind of pushed that all together and stephanie said it a bunch of times she there's a revolution happening in women's sports yada 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 like they found the right time to package it in a way that i think has actually been out of all of the bad stuff that comes with the women's revolution in terms of what Stephanie's doing and how they frame it and the fact that Saudi Arabia makes everything very complicated, they have actually done a good job of, for lack of a better term, marketing in a way 
that makes it feel much more organic than the WWE usually does. Yeah, I think that's a fair way of saying it. I think it's one of the few times, it's like we talked about this in the past, but like fans want to feel like they're a week ahead of the booker, not the other way around. Like like you want to feel like you know that the new wrestler is cool, like while they're still doing squash matches, like before they get into the angle. So like you're seeing them on TV. That's, they don't do squash matches anymore, so this is a poor analogy. Uh, but like you want to feel that, like you know that that wrestler is great one week before the booker does or one week before the wrestler themselves even, even does. But with the Give Divas a Chance movement, which turned into the women's revolution, I think that was one of the few times in, in recent WWE history that I can think of where they really seemed or, yeah, it felt like they were throwing the fans a bone. It actually felt like a moment when the promotion was acknowledging, you know, something that, that people really wanted. And in a way, it felt like, like they did it and they did a strong job with it. Like we said, when they finally when they finally got there, they had the correct personnel because it was it should have already happened. So the personnel was there. You know what I mean? But it but like they 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 made it feel like the fans had pushed them to do something really, really great. And that's always the thing in wrestling, right? It's like the connection between the crowd and the baby face. It's the same deal here. It's like the 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 viewing audience felt that they pushed the WWE in a positive direction. You know, WWE who who have so many who have who have such manifold sins. You know, but but that actually felt like a moment where like the viewing audience positively influenced the direction of the show, and I think that's why even now when like you know they they've some of it is cooled off to some degree. Maybe maybe now there's like a little bit in terms of like not overexposure, but they have the problem where they they kind of rotated all these people who were at least in the first crop together two or three different times. You know what I mean? But like the specialness is still there because it's something that feels like it belongs to the fans. It's like something that belongs to the SJWs. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and, and I think, I think people feel like they have some ownership over it in like a really positive way that WWE usually doesn't allow people. Yeah, and I think another aspect of that in terms of why the women's revolution has worked, the four horsewomen in particular have done so well, is because obviously this isn't necessarily the case with Charlotte. They don't feel like they're just a bunch of stitched together parts of old wrestlers. Like, I think that, and, and to bring it back to Frankenstein, there's this idea that we find repulsive the recycling of different parts of characters in a way that you can clearly see the outline of, oh, that's Terry's head, right? Like, we're just like, this is weird. Yeah, that's that's Terry Funk with that silk stocking over his head. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. No, I think so. And I think that, like, when I, so to contrast the current WWE women with another great moment in women's wrestling history, which was, like, the TNA knockouts, I think that the TNA knockouts were a great example of what you're talking about, where, like, they were really, really great, but after you had like the fourth reincarnation of the beautiful people and stuff, it did have that kind of like corpsey smell to it. Like, okay, at first Angelina Love was the leader of the beautiful people. Now Madison Reigns, leader of the beautiful people. Now Lacey Von Erich is the leader of the beautiful people. Like, it definitely had that like that that abomination quality to it that's just repulsive. Or like to use an example with another male wrestler, it's like. Billy Gunn dressed up as the honky tonk man. Like, even if you know Billy Gunn is a good wrestler because you've seen him in the smoking guns, even if you liked him then, you it's just disgusting. You just want to throw up and you want it off the screen. You can't even make fun of Billy Gunn dressed as the honky tonk man. Yeah, because it it's unsettling because it shows the... And I think this is the case, but please correct me if I'm wrong. In Frankenstein, it shows the... Arbit not arbitrariness, the the ways in which our reality and our own humanity and lives are constructed is that like literally you can reconstruct it out of him you can try to reconstruct a wrestling character out of old parts is something that I think bothers people that like why wouldn't you like is that really just what you do you just have guys come in and you give them characters and then that character can just be a copy of a shitty character i didn't like from 15 years ago and it's like yeah yeah this is exactly how this shit works like i think that we that and i think this is oh, please again correct me if i'm wrong but frankenstein part of the the frightening part of the abomination is the like 
it's this idea of the it's almost like I guess glibness of just like yeah I chopped up a bunch I took a bunch of dead body parts and made a person out of them and it's not understanding or it's wanting people to be like you said impressed with that and not horrified by that <laughs> oh yeah so in the first scene in the book where the the creature is brought to life by dr frankenstein he goes out of his way to say that like when he was assembling the parts he was he was trying to build like a a creation that looked like the perfect man dane stop riding the perfect man brock has to kill him now Aww, can't we keep him yeah dad can't we We'll feed the perfect man and, and clean up after him and everything. Super swear, please. No, he's an abomination. Go ahead, Brock. He the the body parts that he was choosing, like they they weren't just like anything that they were supposed to be like a really athletic, strong, handsome dude, and that he specifically picked this head that had this like long, lustrous, shiny, black, thick hair. You know what I mean? And like, and that the monster is supposed to be handsome, but the second it, the creature is brought to life he immediately recognizes it as repulsive. And I think that happens in wrestling a lot. Like, looks good on the table, looks bad, come to life. Like, think of, like, Giant Gonzalez or something like that. You know what I mean? That, that idea on paper, on the table, looks great. But then it's like you you bring the creature to life and you're – because immediately he runs away. Like, Dr. Frankenstein in the, in the book, it's like the monster comes to life and he immediately runs away and locks himself in his bedroom and, like, pulls the covers over his head and tries to go to sleep. And he has these like vivid nightmares. And when he like pulls the covers off over his face, the monster is standing over him, watching him sleep. Like it's this, it's this like horrible dread. You know what I mean? Like in, in the, in the, I think because Frankenstein in the, in the movie world, in the kind of American entertainment business is like a quote unquote monster movie, which kind of get like grouped in with horror movies. People think of Frankenstein as being like really scary, but like really like Frankenstein is about like dread. You know what I mean? Is is about that just like just deep sadness and regret at something being really fucked up. And like I, I don't know why I'm thinking of all these examples because I, I guess it's too easy in, in in recent wrestling history. But like WWE CW once again, like that whole bit was just like such a Frankenstein thing where like all the ideas looked good. Like the one night stand pay per view did flipping flipping fantastic. You know what I mean? But then you like you see what they came up with and it's just like so, so brutal. But that's definitely the Frankenstein thing. It's not that something is like scary and awful. It's just the dread and the instant regret of how did this get created and how can we humanely uncreate it? The idea that you want to wake up and have it not be the case. Like literally that's what Dr. Frank. Oh, did you know that the monster is actually Frankenstein's monster and the doctor's name is Frankenstein? Did you know that? <laughs> no, this is the first I'm ever hearing of that. No fucking nerd ever mentioned that. Uh, what he's doing is trying to do the thing where he's acting as though it's a bad dream. He's like literally like, it, when I wake up, everything's going to be fine. And no, like you still have WWECW. It still exists. And it's horrifying because it is, it is our own want and desire shoved back in our face in the most grotesque way possible and it's like oh man i fucking love ecw i hope they bring it back and it's like well here <laughs> here this is ecw and it's like no but i liked like the personality of ecw and i liked the like look of ecw and it's like oh no what do you mean we have the look of ecw we have the the logo and and tommy dreamer and he's like that doesn't look like tommy dreamer <laughs> like there's this or that definitely doesn't look like sandman How, why is he so drunk and it's like well first of all almost all of the stuff you saw was done with really crappy cameras and second of all this is what you were watching but the it happening and being created in that moment was enough of a creative like like achievement that you ignored how shitty it was. And now you were having to deal with like the shittiness of existence in a wrestling context. Yeah, definitely. And I think that, that, that both the WWE, just because they're the best, most recent example, but also throughout history, like wrestling promoters and bookers in general, I think there has been this, like this kind of attitude. Like I'm, I'm thinking of a specific name right now that I'll, I'll keep out my mouth, but I'm sure people know who I'm thinking about. Uh, but there's this like, wait till the boys at the university hear about this. Like that's literally a big part of the opening 
chapters of Franken or the opening parts of Victor Frankenstein's narrative are literally talking about like being laughed at in the university community and not accepted for his like alternative beliefs and stuff and how he's going to show everybody how he was always the smartest by doing this great thing. And it's like, I it just, just watch a shoot interview. Just watch a shoot interview. I'll leave it at that. Uh, you kind of hinted at this. This is something that becomes its own Frankenstein's monster for like, ironically, uh, adaptations of this are very weird because they don't, like you said, it's not a scare. He's not a monster. He's a, a, a tragic figure, right? Like that's a, an accurate assessment of Frankenstein's monsters. He's not so much a monster as he is uh, like a sad sack tale. Yeah. I mean, he's just a, a guy who's just as intelligent or as you or I, maybe a little more so he teaches himself to fucking read, or I guess he's taught to read by a child, you know what I mean? Like that's a pretty serious accomplishment. Uh, but I mean, he's, he's very smart. He's very sensitive. He's very perceptive of the world around him, but like, because he is ugly because he freaks people out with his physical appearance. He's just like deeply isolated and, and sad and that sadness turns into anger i mean the book is it's you know he's he he is rejected by by the only parent or the only god he could possibly conceive of you know what i mean it's definitely he he definitely is a a sympathetic character and i mean it it, it speaks to the period too like the kind of whole romantic literature piece of like trying to not necessarily see a traditional swashbuckling hero like we talked about maybe you know in some of the epic storytelling stuff but trying to see a hero who's heroic because of like the sensitive, insightful way they see the world and the way that they that they struggle against impossible challenges that are put before them. So I think the the Adam, the creature, is certainly the the romantic hero of the story. Like Frankenstein really is a, a sniveling shit and is maybe only redeemed at the end by like by his kind of admission that 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 he fucked everything up and deserves to die. Like that's the only redemption for him is admitting how bad he fucked everything up. You know what I mean? Whereas the monster is a much more nuanced figure who you're rooting for much more like Frankenstein's rooting to not be killed by the monster, to not have his, his own wife killed by the monster and stuff. What the monster is, is rooting for is, is much more fundamentally human really. Yeah. And I think that this is maybe the thesis of the show is that we are uncomfortable, especially in entertainment, with comprehending and dealing with nuanced stakes and especially like internal struggles. So what Frankenstein becomes is just a monster. Like the goal in most of the movies is to just stop him, is to kill him, to make sure he is no longer existing because he's a danger to everyone. And that is because the idea of expressing it within ourselves a kind of humanity that frankenstein has scares the shit out of us but man is frankenstein a good gimmick like it's an it like it works as a gimmick more so than a character in a popular entertainment sense of not having to think too much or too hard about the moral implications of dr frankenstein in my experience with the movies is seen as somewhere between an idiot and uh egomaniac but in a way that he is a means to an end and, and and correct me if i'm wrong in the book he is it is less so that's the case he is less uh like a narrative construct and it is actually like a fully formed character with flaws and and good qualities and, and things like that correct yeah i mean he's a narrator who you don't hate even though you know he's doing really really dumb stuff yeah no definitely you're you're willing to go along on the journey with him as you read the parts of the book that are narrated by him definitely yeah yeah, yeah. he's not like he's not necessarily just like the way you get to the monster like he he exists for a separate purpose oh no certainly his his whole pathos of being misunderstood himself is kind of like a miniature precursor that kind of predicts what's going to happen in the in the main body of the story you know i mean there's definitely stuff that that's in that's that's in him that helps you kind of relate to him in the same way you later connect with the the creature even more so but no definitely he's he's certainly human in his own way yeah and i i think what that is something you see a lot in wrestling in particular 
particularly egregiously, and th- this is an example we use a lot, it's the John Cena rapper to John Cena. I think we used to talk about it two episodes ago. John Cena rapper to John Cena Marine is an example of this, that like what people actually liked about John Cena and what made his character work originally in its original conception, more or less, is that he's like a funny guy who is tough as shit. And then they went, okay, he's tough as shit, and we're going to write his jokes for him. Like, we can f- we can make the second part of that WWE style, and the first part is perfect for what we're looking for. Yeah, I think you were just talking about, like, the different, like, uh, movie adaptations of Frankenstein, and they go, like, I think of, like, the Boris Karloff Universal monster movie Frankenstein movies, like, those are probably the most well-known uh but like those are very much like the wwe version of the story in the way that like when people in the the late 80s would kind of talk about like or would make fun of or would decry wwe for being quote-unquote cartoon wrestling that everybody went and just was kind of like reduced to some gimmick like that and then that you had to focus more of your energy into being that gimmick than you did actually wrestling and and showing off all the skills that you'd acquired over the last decade you know what i mean but i think that the universal movies are very much that that they they just kind of boil it down to the parts of it that are entertaining and that are box office like a monster chasing people is way more exciting box office wise than like like, that's a summer blockbuster monster chasing someone is a summer blockbuster like monster so, chasing himself is <laughs> right that's see that's a, like a sensitive movie that's released you know in december and either is going to get nominated for an oscar or is going to make two thousand dollars you know what i mean like that, that's the moonshot art story whereas the universal movies that's the box office story and i think that that's very similar to the way that like the way that people think of wwe wrestling or used to think of wwe wrestling is kind of like reductive it's like, yeah, that's true. And you see that same thing going on in the Frankenstein movies. But I think it's, it's to take something that's maybe a little atsy-fatsy and, and boil it down to the, the, the profitable version of it that will sell tickets. And I think that is actually maybe Vince McMahon's best skill is to take things, strip them for parts and per- make entertainment out of it. I don't think it's necessarily a good skill, but it is his best skill is that ability to like figure out what's going to sell from a package, take apart the rest of the package and just display in the nicest way possible the three things you think are going to sell from that person. And it'd be kind of like if you took Frankenstein and turned him into uh, a guy that like helps helps Abbott and Costello. Like uh, there are so many egregious examples in Frankenstein of them, not just ignoring the fundamental nature of the character, but actively like ignoring any of the implications of the story just to get to the monster part. Oh yeah. Or like you think about like uh, the show, the monsters, like Herman Munster is normal, is like a normal family sitcom dad in like every single way. But there's just like occasionally jokes about his feet being dead. <laughs> yeah. And what's funny is that that is almost a more humane example of like a good adaptation of the character. That is almost closer to life to the character than like anything other than the Robert De Niro version where like he's an actual like sensitive right like the the Robert De Niro is a little bit more oh yeah that that movie is called Mary Shelley's Frankenstein I think which must have come out at the same year as Bram Stoker's Dracula <laughs> yeah that see I just used the word artsy fartsy a few minutes ago but I did it in my best Kevin Sullivan South Boston accent uh, like that I mean Mary Shelley's Frankenstein the, the De Niro movie was definitely I mean the kind of a you know, it was directed by Kenneth Branagh, who does the uh, he does the Shakespeare movies, and he he did he does the Poirot movies now too. Just sort of like an intentionally theatrical presentation that was really about, like you said, the the monster finds himself kind of thing. But but they definitely more than in any other you know uh, adaptation, like in that one, he he is eloquent. He talks. He reads. He you know interacts with people who are who are willing to deal with them. It definitely tells a more complete version of the book, whereas like. Like, so the Universal movies and stuff, the narratives we tend to think about, they focus more just on Dr. Frankenstein's narrative, not the whole section of the book where, like, the monster comes and explains his perspective. And then there's Young Frankenstein, which I've never seen, so... 
<laughs> a classic, a classic, definitely, uh, definitely. I mean, I could, you, I think my parents could like recite the entire script for that movie. But yeah, it, 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 it is definitely excellent. I recommend it. It's, it's got, a, it's got the Mel Brooks thing where it's like the awesome blend of really smart writing, really dumb writing, really good physical comedy, and really dumb physical comedy. Like that, that like what's I? It, it's, it's like Mel Brooks really had it going for a number of years. Like he made like three or four incredible movies in such a short span and like i i don't like a lot of his later work like robin hood men in tights or like dracula dead and loving it and those movies and stuff like i i'm not big on those but his kind of prime years like blazing saddles history of the world part one uh young frankenstein like those movies are, are tremendous definitely yeah um so now that we've solved the adaptation problem and the problem of resurrecting life and playing god uh I have a question that I've been thinking about this entire time. If you were to construct Frankenstein's style, our performer, out of look, size, ability, and character, who would it be? Like, who would you use? I guess in terms of, like, size, I would have to go with uh, The Undertaker. I think that he's he's tall and big and looks like a giant, but he still also looks like a real athlete, like a like a big, tall, narrow-shouldered basketball player, as uh, as Ole Anderson once famously said. Uh, but uh, but but uh, so the 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 general size would be the Undertaker, uh, and but he is going to be he's going to be like mid '90s Shawn Michaels handsome with the uh, mullet or without the mullet. Uh, I'm thinking like right before he cuts the mullet into the more ponytail haircut. Okay. All right. I'm thinking like, I'm thinking like not like, like post Sherry, but pre DX. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I know exactly what you meant. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Barely enough. I knew exactly what you meant. And then uh, let's see, he's, he's going to be doing, uh, he's, he's going to be doing the King Kong Bundy five count gimmick. He's going to, yeah, yeah, that, 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 that's going to be the character. It's just gonna, he's going to be a, a big, angry guy, and he's going to beat everybody up, and he's going to do the five-count gimmick because I think that there's a lot of supers out there now the last year, a lot of big big men in the wrestling ring again. Uh, like uh, MLW's got a Barrington Hughes, and a TNA's got, sorry, Impact Wrestling has a Falaba and, and all that. So, so, so I, I think that someone needs to do that five-count gimmick. It's so fucking good. I love it. Uh, so, and then what was the other thing? There was one more, uh, we got, was it, uh, the look generally? Um, no, it was the, um, on the mic. I think, I think, I think what it was basically the personality, not the gimmick, but the personality, like the actual, right? Yeah. Four parts. It was. Oh yeah. Okay. So yeah, we'll go, uh, we'll do like, uh, like, like, like the personality will be like a bruiser Brody, like, uh, like an intelligent monster. Yeah. That's, that's exactly what I was thinking. See, I would, uh, personally, Great, and I think I think we both had the same idea, which is kind of make it like a monstrous, but not the who would win a championship, but like I think what you would have to do to really make somebody scary, I feel like you would need to give them like giant Gonzalez's size, but skinnier, <laughs> like minute bull style, like skinny, and I think what you would have to do is give him like Kurgan's brain uh but with the ability to cut a promo like drew mcintyre and i feel like the look would also be basically like a handsome skinnier taller version of drew mcintyre who just looks like a giant like viking not viking warrior but like a giant warrior but is so skinny you're afraid he might break in half like i think that would be the only way you could work with a bigger version of drew mcintyre and actually have it work and be scary is that the only vulnerabilities you could literally snap him in half that would be you had me at money bowl <laughs> you've been saying that for years <laughs> i have ever since his snl hosting gig one of my one of my low-key favorite episodes of the, of the early 90s <laughs> mid 90s era uh, so do you have anything to plug this week? Oh, just myself, as usual. You can check me out on Twitter at DaveWritesJunk. That's my handle, as they say. I uh, tweet wrestling and other fun stuff. Uh, definitely, if you're a listener on the show, I'd love to hear from you. I had a couple of listeners uh, include me in, in uh, some uh, some Chris Gaines talk this week, which I am I am a, a huge... Once again, speaking of other great SNL host gigs, the uh, 
the uh, Chris Gaines is the musical guest and Garth Brooks is the host. And they do, they do the sketch where Mango is in love with Chris Gaines, but has no interest in Garth Brooks. It's so good. Uh, classic, classic SNL stuff. Uh, that, that, you know, if you're any older than me, you're like, wow, and stop being funny. Five years before that, because that's how SNL works. Uh, anyway, uh, so uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Dave Writes Junk. Definitely hit me up about the show. Uh, and of course, I'll also plug our Patreon as usual. I, uh, I preserved all of our listeners' ears from uh, enthusiastic pitching this week. So I'll just quietly sneak it in here. Uh, please think about it, especially as we head into this important giving season. Uh, think about supporting the show at patreon.com slash H-W-E-T-W. Just $2 a month. That's kind of the tier that I like to recommend to people because I'm not asking for too much. I would never do that. But at the same time, I mean, a dollar, that's not very much at all. So I think two is really kind of the sweet spot. But uh, for $2, we'll give you a shout out on the show. You'll get the uh, extra show notes uh, that I publish each week, the uh, follow-up files. And then also you'll have exclusive uh, access to the podcast beyond coming up in the new year. More about that later. So uh, check me out on Twitter and give us money on Patreon. And you can check me out at the Nixon. It's T-H-E-N-1-C-K-S-T-R. Or you can follow us at H-W-E-T-W pod, both on Twitter. Uh, and you can download, rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and the Google Play Store to do the same. Um, yeah, and, and like Dave said, uh, check out the Patreon and look forward to the podcast beyond. That's that's really all I have to say about that. D- Dave, did you have anything you wanted to add? No, long live Pocket Cast. If you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where fashion sits? <laughs> Different types who wear a day coat, pants with stripes or cutaway coat, perfect fits. Dressed up like a million dollar trooper Trying mighty hard to look like Gary Cooper Cooper, Cooper! Come let's mix where Rockefellers walk with sticks Or umbrellas in their midst Your